the guys who run the country are basically the mafia, even though there are politicians who are nominally elected to do their bidding. Um, while I was there, the Prime Minister got shot because he was trying to have a showdown with the mafia. So there was all this kind of weird, crazy, you know, Balkan geopolitical meltdown going on behind the scenes that was playing out through this war of two festivals. <laughs> I have to admit to being you know, the, basically the villain of the piece in some ways, because I, I misled myself. Um, uh, you know, a lot of my illusions were, were my own creation. <laughs> um, so I can't blame the world for, for foisting its, its, you know, its lies on me. I chose to believe in a lot of them because they served me quite well. For this music festival experience became you know, a window on the world for me. It was, it was, it was so eye-opening. I mean, I would say it was actually even enlightening in some ways. Although it was, you know, a complete, you know, losing my illusions on a roller coaster-type experience with my eyes propped open, with, with you know, not just matchsticks, but some sort of form of the, the torture at the end of a Clockwork Orange, just forced to watch all this unfolding horror in front of me. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. This is the second episode of the Getting Better Acquainted. Edinburgh 2013 season. Today is another conversation with somebody who has appeared as part of Stand Up Tragedy. Stand Up Tragedy is the live show and podcast that I run and it is a night where people stand up and they do tragedy. At Stand Up Tragedy we hope people will cry until they laugh and laugh until they cry and it's a variety show so we have musicians, we have comedians we have spoken word artists we have cabaret artists we have all sorts of things and we also have people telling true stories and today's conversation is with somebody who indeed did tell a true story at stand-up tragedy that episode will be coming out as part of the stand-up tragedy podcast in a couple of days time and stand-up tragedy as a podcast is going to be going daily starting from today so check out www.standuptragedy.co.uk or find it on soundcloud or itunes and it's going to be happening every day throughout the edinburgh festival and it's going to be bringing a different tragic act majority of which will be recorded up in edinburgh and we're also going to be talking to people on the streets of Edinburgh and getting their tragic moments and various different kinds of interactive type things we're going to be trying out over there. So check out what Stand Up Tragedy is doing. Stand Up Tragedy will be happening as a live show in Edinburgh as part of PBH's Free Fringe from the 3rd till the 14th of August. So first night is tomorrow. And we're going to be on at 6.30 till 7.30 downstairs at the Fiddler's Elbow and because we're part of the Free Fringe it is free entry we'll be passing around Jester's hats if you want to put a donation in at the end Getting Better Acquainted is also going to be up at the Free Fringe I'm doing two live recordings on the 12th and 13th of August in the Banquet Hall at the Banshee Labyrinth from 1.40 till 2.40 in the afternoon and I don't know what the, who the guests are yet at the time of me recording this I haven't got definites I've got some maybes but they're going to be guests who are part of the festival in some way give you a flavour of the festival so they're most likely to be performers or producers or something around that kind of area Oh, and another thing that I'm doing is a workshop about true storytelling, which is linked to Spark London, which is another thing that is talked about in today's conversation. That workshop is also part of the Free Fringe, as is Getting Better Acquainted, and you can come to that on the 8th 
of August. That's at 12.15 till 1.15 downstairs at the Fiddler's Elbow. So lots of exciting things going on and I can't tell you what's going to be coming up on Getting Better Acquainted over the next two weeks because I haven't recorded it yet. But it is going to be continuation of the Getting Better Acquainted Fringe Festival season. There have been Getting Better Acquainted specials every year for the last two years. So this is going to be the third batch of specials. I think it's probably going to be two specials, but I don't know because I'm not there yet. Have a listen back to the last two years Edinburgh specials if you like some of the stuff on there might not be as as relevant to now but some of the performers will be performing now at Edinburgh and they're not just really about reviewing shows or anything there's a lot of less kind of a my emotional journey if you like because the first time I went to the Edinburgh festival for getting better acquainted I was an audience member I went there as part of a friend's stag do did some conversations with some people saw some shows but was really there as part of a stag do that was centered around the festival last year I went as a performer I performed at Spark London and I did a lot of conversations with people and I kind of recorded all of that down that's last year's special this year I'm going up as a producer I'm taking my show Stand Up Tragedy up as mentioned before and so I'm going to be recording and editing in my accommodation that I'm sharing with the rest of my team and I'm going to be trying to give you a flavour of my experience, what the festival is like, what my team is like, what I'm like, all of that sort of stuff. We're going to be getting better acquainted with that and as I'm recording a couple of episodes in front of an audience I'm sure that they'll go out as part of this fringe festival season. Today the 2nd of August which is when this will come out is also the day when we're releasing the first of our Stand Up Tragedy Edinburgh podcasts, which is going to feature a recording we did back on the 4th of July at the Dog Star in Brixton of Josie Long, the comedian who we might have heard on the telly and stuff, shared with us a really personal, true story told with humour and warmth and everything that you want in a piece of kind of personal performance. She really embraced the idea of tragedy, which is what we're hoping all of our performers will be doing over our Edinburgh run. We're all really looking forward to it in the Stand Up Tragedy team. There's lots of spreadsheets involved, I can tell you. And it's all happening. And in fact, when this is released, we will be travelling from London to Edinburgh in a van with no knowledge exactly of how it will turn out. But however it does turn out, we're going to embrace it and I'm going to be there recording it and sharing it with you guys. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Daniel Simpson. Hello, Dan. Hello, Dave. Is that the right way to call you, Dan, or is that how you go by? Or? I don't mind anything except Danny Boy, really. Danny Boy, okay, well, I'll avoid Danny Boy. Thank uh, you. I'm Dave, but I will answer to David. Actually, David is my name, but I, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with Dave for some reason. Does David come from your mother when she's telling you off? Or? Ah, good point. Maybe. I, I don't know. It's, it's a weird one, my name. I think uh, David's what I'm called at work, so uh, I'm much more comfortable with Dave because that's why 
you know, I'm not at work. But also I think when I was uh, growing up, I had a, a nickname given to me at school. And so the name I claimed back was Dave. And so it's always kind of closer to me than, than David, which sounds, I guess, a bit more posh, I guess. Maybe yeah. that's what... Was it easier to get called Dave than it was to be called David when you were trying to reclaim your name from nicknameness? Yeah, I think so. I think it's like an easy... Yeah, exactly, exa- exactly. I mean, I was going for... I was trying to, like, reclaim the name from a kind of mocking point of view. So I guess David sounded a little bit... It's, it's, it's long, and Melvin was the nickname everyone gave me. So it's kind of like, Dave is, is different. <laughs> so Stop that, Dave! Maybe yeah, making a making a clean break. <laughs> so, the, the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Well, I know you because I volunteered to stand on a stage and uh, tell everybody about my uh, crimes and misdemeanours as a former foreign correspondent, which led to me getting involved with the Serbian mafia by mistake. Yeah. And uh, you were curating the evening, and you very kindly put me on first, with me never having done this before. So sure. I got on stage cursing your name and. Uh, <laughs> dribbled some verbal diarrhea at the crowd and then got away that's well yeah and, and you 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 uh you did absolutely perfectly well uh going on first i think do, did i put you on after me though i would have put um, you probably on after me no i think i actually had to go first ah, yeah, yeah. I'm so, yeah i've learned to not do that so i'm sorry about that oh, that's okay uh, I, my, my, my new policy is to always do the first story to never put people in that position i think i secretly wanted to go on first well i think yeah well i didn't, you, I didn't, didn't like the idea of having to follow some of the acts that came later so i got, <laughs> I got away with setting the tone for myself no it's quite good to, it is good to go first in that respect yeah i, I feel that when i go first so yeah Sparta London is a true story telling night that I run the Hackney branch of which is at the Hackney Attic that the branch I run is an open mic and you came along I guess you'd heard about Spark in advance I had yeah um, I've got a friend in uh, Canada who's been telling me a lot about storytelling and I didn't really know what it amounted to and I started googling around to see what there was in London I found out about Spark and that they had a, a, a monthly night up in uh, Little Venice so I asked about getting involved with that found I'd missed that month was told about the, the Hackney event and just decided I'd come along and see what I could get away with. Yeah, and that was great. I, I, th- I mean, I loved your story. I mean, obviously, or I probably wouldn't have uh, got you on this on this show. And also, I've, I've actually booked you for Stand Up Tragedy, the other show and uh, live show and podcast that I run. I'm looking forward to, to hearing your story, kind of in, in the tragic in a, in a tragic framing. Yeah, well, uh, I'm looking forward to, to really letting rip and, and, and giving it its uh, full ignominy. Yeah, um, well, that's it. I mean, it is a story that. I think has lots of tragedy in it and I guess it also has a lot of things that you can relate to I enjoyed your story on stage and it also had a book in it because you've you've written the book A Rough Guide to the Dark Side is the story Uh, and uh, I guess the title kind of gives away that it doesn't all end well otherwise it would be a much happier thing than a dark side Um, but there are so many dark sides involved primarily in my own head but um, also in Western foreign policy at the time of the start of the war on terrorism um, which I was uh, a first hand observer of as a New York Times foreign correspondent so I started to see this corruption in the media world I was working in I was living at the time in Belgrade in Serbia, which is one hell of a corrupt place in itself. Um, and then I decided I would try and do something more idealistic and uh, start a summer of love in the Balkans by running a music festival. Uh, and then I discovered just how corrupt Serbia really is, because it's actually impossible to do anything there without making a deal with the mafia. I was totally you know, oblivious to this. Uh, found out the hard way that they stole all the cash. And uh, although we did run a festival, uh, we ended up not able to pay all the people who worked with it. And I left the country in, in 
in shame and disgrace in a drug fueled mess and uh, had to go away and, and put myself back together again. So, so it didn't end happily for me, but um, I think it ended quite happily for all the people who came to the festival and had a nice time. Well, that's good. At least there's that. At least there's that. And, and, and no one died, at least. Anyway. Exactly. And that's kind of the. Uh, that's kind of the, 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 the Which isn't the, something the you can take for granted in the Balkans. Absolutely. No, no, absolutely right. I mean, and this, that's a very heavily kind of abbreviated version, and we're going to get kind of more into a lo- more longer form uh, discussion of a lot of that stuff in this conversation, really, because that's 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 all I really know of you. So it's it's, it's definitely going to be where I'm going to start off. The other thing is, I did, I bought your book that night, and I. Uh, this is uh, evidence of how rubbish I am as a host of a podcast. I didn't manage to read it in advance of this. I did. I have had it. I've got it in my bag as uh, here uh, t- today with me. And I've had it in my bag for like three weeks. But I'm just never getting the time to read anything, even prep for uh, a conversation. So when you start, you won't be able to put it down until you finish. Of course, I'm sure. Absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, I, I wish. I, yeah, exactly. I wish I'd. Be, I'd wish I'd made a start to to be able to to confirm that for definite. But uh, but yeah. Yeah, no, I'm sure, because I mean, I, I love the story on stage, which is why I bought your book. So yeah, so how did you come to be in the Balkans as the New York Times correspondent? As an idealistic and ambitious, and I guess pretty egotistical young man, um, I went to uh, Cambridge University, graduated thinking I was destined for great things. I wanted to start working as a journalist, but I didn't just want any old job, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I was lucky enough to be a trainee at Reuters News Agency, which uh, has bureaus in pretty much every country on the planet and uh, operates as a kind of clearinghouse for everybody else, uh, reporting on the stories that that most people who run other news organisations don't spend the money on covering directly themselves, but keeps those those, those organisations aware of what's happening in the world. So, for example, you watch BBC Foreign News... A lot of the time, even even the, the the pictures they're screening haven't come from their own camera crews. They've come from a Reuters or an Associated Press camera person who's then filed that to a central location and then it's been sold on to everybody else. And then the BBC guy stands up and does his little piece to camera, but he hasn't been everywhere. It's impossible for everyone to be everywhere. So I, I, I thought that was a great way to get started. I joined Reuters and thought I was going to go off to uh, cover wars, uh, perhaps natural disasters, uh, other such things that seem to put you on the, you know, the nightly news on TV. Uh, and I guess I wanted to be famous. I was, uh, as I say, uh, a very ambitious and, and, and egotistical person at that time <laughs> in my life. Um, instead, I was sent to Frankfurt and asked to cover the stock market because Reuters makes most of its money uh, reporting on financial news and selling trading systems to banks and is actually, uh, to a certain extent, complicit in pumping up bubbles that burst on us periodically and cause all sorts of hell for the rest of us. Well, uh, right, it must have been quite a complicated thing as, a, as an idealistic, if egotistical person well, to, uh, to, to this, this is where my idealism, man, guess, yeah, Well, in indeed, way, yeah, my idealism and egotism came into head-on collision quite quickly. I mean, wow. it took a few years, because uh, I was doing quite well as a young trainee at Reuters, and they, uh, they offered me a job when I was um, 26 to, to run one of their bureaus. Admittedly, it was in Romania, so it wasn't the uh, the most cherished of, of possible destinations, but um, I felt like I'd really made it. And I got to this place, and I was suddenly off their news map, and they didn't really want to know what was going on. And uh, I found myself um, presiding over a story that I couldn't really tell, and so I had a bit more time to think. I also had a lot more time to get stoned, which was one of my major le- le- leisure interests at that time. Sure. And um, the more I started thinking about what I was doing. The, 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 the more it seemed like I'd been distracted from, from what I really wanted to do. At that time, this was 2001, uh, a civil war started in a country called Macedonia, which I had never heard of. Uh, it turned out to be uh, a republic in uh, what had once been Yugoslavia. Um, and it was the only republic that had broken.
broken away from Yugoslavia without a war. But ten years later, after the, the war in Croatia and then subsequently in Bosnia and also later in Kosovo, Macedonia was uh, starting a civil war inside its own borders. And uh, I was asked to go and help out with that, being based in Romania where no one wanted to know what was happening. I was uh, a free hand not too far away. Um, so I was posted, posted there. I spent the summer of 2001 reporting on the war in Macedonia that never quite turned into the, the horror show that everybody feared. And that was for a brief period world news. Um, and then after September the 11th happened and the New York Times Balkan correspondent was reassigned, like most of our colleagues, to, to Afghanistan to watch a, an American bombing campaign, um, they were scouting around at short notice for somebody else to fill a hole. I was the person whose Reuters stories they'd copied and pasted into their newspaper over the summer and uh, they phoned me up and offered me a job. So I really thought I'd made it. I'd been headhunted by the New York Times. Yeah. But, uh, and were you kind of excited to go there? Um, I was, yeah. I had this really naive idea that because I was joining what likes to think of itself as the world's best newspaper, I would be um, finding out and uh, telling the world about the way the world works. Um, and being in Macedonia that summer, um, I had started to, to call into question the way I've been doing that until that point. Um, I found Reuters just wanted to take dictation from the people who run the world. So in this case, it was NATO that was trying to intervene in Macedonia to prevent this civil war, supposedly. But basically, it was to stop NATO soldiers being killed in Kosovo, where they'd intervened a couple of years earlier, to try and prevent a war like the one in Bosnia, where they hadn't intervened, where yeah, over 100,000 people have been killed. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there was a right messy uh, combination of Western foreign policy gone wrong and the news media complicit in that process. And, and I started to think, we need to ask more questions about this and try and understand it better and, and tell the world why Western intervention hasn't fixed the Balkans and in fact has actually made things worse in some ways. Um, but of course, uh, that was very naive and... Uh, the New York Times had absolutely no interest whatsoever in asking searching questions about Western foreign policy after September the 11th. Instead, they were even keener than Reuters had been on taking dictation from the people who ran the world. In their case, um, the Pentagon, the White House, the CIA, and uh, all manner of other people who were dreaming up uh, weapons of mass destruction that Saddam Hussein didn't possess uh, in an alliance with al-Qaeda that he never had. Sure. <laughs> and I was watching them stick that in their paper, and I thought, Jesus, these guys are really corrupt. And... I, mean, I got more stoned. Yeah, so I mean, were you getting like directly rejected? Like your your stuff you were trying to tell them was getting directly rejected? It was getting rewritten, basically. I mean, this is what happens. You file a story and then it goes to an editing desk and um, what you try and say is usually uh, rewritten with received wisdom that generally conforms to what other people are writing or what, what the editors have heard from uh, what they've read in some elite journal like Foreign Affairs or from chatting to some retired diplomat who they're friends with. I mean, the New York Times is full of people who really are social climbers and um, they spend their time hanging out with, with, with uh, you know, the people who do run the world and I was expected to reflect that worldview and if I didn't do it, they would do it on my behalf. Right. So I started seeing that happening. I also saw they didn't really want me to write too much about the Balkans um, because after September the 11th, they'd lost all interest in that part of the world but there were still American soldiers stationed there so they thought they ought to care um, and uh, occasionally I was being asked to dream up uh, stories that didn't really exist about Serbian complicity in selling weapons 
to Saddam Hussein, which uh, really did open my eyes and right. made me think this is a this is a farce. I mean, did you do that, or did you? Um, well, I was in an unfortunate position. I'd just been away for uh, a weekend of rave parties uh, <laughs> in which I had taken ecstasy and masculine and came back with my head all in, in a mess. And then I was summoned to the American embassy to take dictation, effectively, and I didn't really know what to do. I, I wrote a very pro forma story saying I've been told these things. Um, I immediately got emailed by a very senior New York Times journalist at that time who was involved in, in printing the most ridiculous claims about nuclear weapons in, in, in Iraq. Uh, and she asked me to, uh, to to go much harder on the story and to, to phone all sorts of uh, other people in, you know, in, in the American power structure who would confirm what she'd been told in Washington. I mean, I couldn't actually find any evidence of anything other than some spare plane parts being sold to the Iraqis, which was going to put their decrepit air force back in the skies uh, to enable them to, to perhaps have something to obstruct a few American planes, but it hardly amounted to weapons of mass destruction delivery systems or right. unmanned aerial vehicles and goodness knows what else I was being told about. So when I'd seen all that, I just decided I had enough of being a journalist in a way. And as I say, I was, was taking quite a few drugs at that stage in my life. I was... Uh, uh, also friends with some uh, fairly interesting characters in Serbia who were introducing me to a pretty wild nightlife scene and I started to think it would be much more fun to get more involved with that than with uh, you know, promoting an illegal war in a part of the world where I'd never set foot despite the fact that you know, my country that I was supposed to be covering had nothing to do with it. Right, so rather than uh, promoting an illegal war you decided to promote a uh, music festival. Yeah, well, there's a whole complicated story about that as well. Yeah. Um, there, 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 there is a festival in Serbia that is perhaps well known to some of your listeners called Exit. Uh, it's been going now for uh, a bit more than 10 years. And that started out as a student protest movement against the uh, former Serbian uh, tyrant Slobodan Milosevic, who was pretty much responsible for starting the wars that led to the breakup of Yugoslavia. He saw an opportunity to, to, to stage a power grab as the country was disintegrating. And uh, he presided over you know, everybody's impoverishment and uh, subsequent sort of isolation from the outside world. So young people grew up in Serbia, cut off from Western Europe, having previously lived in the most open part of the, the, the communist bloc. And um, they were you know, very bitter, I found, when I got there to Belgrade. Um, they, they, they felt they'd been cheated by the outside world. Um, and they wanted an opportunity to, to, to be seen differently and, and not as you know, evil warmongering Serbs. Uh, and I went to this music festival exit when it had first begun and as I say it was a bunch of students trying to organise protests against the government initially. Once Sobodan Milosevic had been deposed they just had a party um, and that party was actually being funded by the American government uh, and it was being funded by the American government to ensure that some of these idealistic young Serbs might feel very well disposed towards the West despite all the things that it had done to them over the preceding decade and that these guys who might go on to become ambitious politicians uh, would, would, would then be the kind of guys who could be phoned up and persuaded to do what Washington wants them to do. So I watched all that and thought, wow, this, this new festival looks fun, but I'm not very sure about the politics behind it. How about we do it slightly differently and uh, ask anybody who's prepared to copy that model from NATO to the European Union to a Nobel Prize winning Auschwitz survivor to anyone we could possibly get our hands on who might have cash or connections with cash to fund the transition of the Balkans into uh, the next Ibiza, effectively. Right, OK. <laughs> um, and you might think that sounds absurd, but ten years later there are now you know, more than a dozen festivals every summer in Croatia. People are going over in their droves from this country to go, go and party on the Adriatic. And we wanted to start that scene ten years earlier. But no, I mean, I don't think that sounds exactly... Uh, I don't think it really sounds 
ridiculous, really. I mean, I guess, I mean, where the kind of youthful, um, I'm moving the entire table, um, but when, where that youthful kind of um, idealism kind of comes into kind of conflict with reality is, you know, Ibiza isn't necessarily the the kind of free wonderland that we all kind of like would like it to be in some ways. And no, so, and I guess that's that's the thing. It's like, sure, I, I, I don't believe, I don't have any problem believing that any anywhere uh, in the world can become a kind of corporate uh, way of people having pleasure and spending money necessarily I mean there's, you know, there are all these failed party paradises to look at whether it's in Thailand or in Goa yeah. and you know people people set out with some wonderful ideals and, and, and I'd spent time in, in you know, those kind of places myself and, and, and felt disappointed by what I'd discovered there and then I'd heard all these tales about what they'd been at the beginning and yeah. uh, I, I wanted to be in at the, you know, the, the basement of creating something else that was going to go through the sky well yeah the, the um, first wave have the good drugs and the, and, and the idealistic people and then, then the second wave Wave come when the when the good drugs run out and people start coming in to make money and then there's the third wave. Well, indeed, you know, I mean, I got some very crazy ideas. I've been at this time <laughs> when I was in Romania to uh, the Kumbh Mela in India, which is the world's biggest uh, gathering of humans, uh, you know, in, in any way, shape, or form. It's a religious festival ostensibly, but a part of the Hindu faith is. Uh, um, that there are sects of wandering ascetics who smoke hash all day long in vast quantities through a, a conical clay pipe called the chillum. And I'd spent my time sitting around with these, these guys getting really stoned by the side of the river Ganges and uh, with maybe 10 million people around me. Uh, also hanging out with some old hippies who'd been you know, in at the Goa scene at uh, the start of the 70s and uh, they'd also given me some very good ecstasy and uh, we went swimming in the river I, I felt myself dissolve into this oneness with everybody around me instead of feeling intimidated by the crush uh, and, and, and I thought it would be possible to, to actually just recreate that so I decided the only way to do it would be to smuggle that quality of Indian hashish which in my opinion is, is, is some of the finest on earth in vast quantities to the Balkans and uh, give it away and uh, so I was hoping that we would get enough cash that I'd be able to pay for that. And in the interim, I was so smuggling were, it myself by uh, you sticking it on my backside and flying from Amsterdam to, 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 to Belgrade and stashing it in my apartment. <laughs> and you were trying to fund that like by the what, through the UN and people like this. Yeah, right? I was. Well, I mean, I was still technically the New York Times Balkans correspondent, although I wasn't really doing my job and I was stoned all the time. Um, so I was going for meetings with you know pe- pe- people. There's a guy called Javier Solana. He used to be the Secretary General of NATO. Who at that time was the uh, the first head of the uh, common foreign and security policy of the European Union. I went to interview him one day, and in the middle of the interview, just, just stopped asking the usual questions and started saying, I think the EU needs to sponsor this to get a, a better reputation with young people down here who basically think you're some neo-colonial project to take them over. And all it would take is you know half a million euros, and we could, you know, in an instant, change how people perceive you. And you can call the festival what you like. In fact, we're going to call the festival ECHO, which is the name of the European Commission humanitarian office as well um, so we figured we had this branding all set up that would enable them to, to co-opt us use us however they wanted as long as they gave us some cash and did they go for that uh, he actually ran away very quickly to board his Learjet and uh, his spokesman ended the interview and uh, looked at me as if I was insane but um uh, yeah, I, I, I continued to think it was worth pursuing and then went to Brussels and met some of his senior advisors who, who 
actually took it relatively seriously for a while and then said you do realise of course this guy has absolutely no money at all he doesn't control the budget so uh, I was left stumped uh, and, and, and informed that I need to go around national capitals lobbying all the governments of the EU if I really wanted any, any well, on, money. on one level it is a, an idea that I could see someone convincing these people to I go mean, with. Well, so if you're Bono and you can sure, just find out the guys exactly. you met at Davos then yeah. sure but and, and, <laughs> and if you're not doing this kind of elaborate uh, smuggling of Indian hashish as part of the plan uh, that's probably that well, is of course, the kind of area I mean, you know, the UN aren't too keen I don't want to start preaching against drugs because uh, uh, I found that they've uh, they, they've in many ways freed my mind although I have stopped uh, stopped taking drugs in, in recent years because I found that uh, they were getting in the way of me freeing my mind any further um, but um, I don't know I think, I think it muddled my thinking a little bit because I was getting less and less connected with the reality of what was happening in front of me and more and more connected with the, uh, the visions I had for transforming that reality yeah. uh, and you know, part of that is what inspiration is all about but in the end there's got to be a phase of execution so I was effectively the equivalent of some guy sat in his bedroom smoking more and more spliffs thinking that things are going to go wonderfully in the outside world right. but at the same time I was actually going out into the outside world trying to make it happen and paying zero attention to all the warning signs that were saying this is going terribly um, we didn't raise any money we managed to persuade 1500 people to turn up and make this festival happen despite them not having been paid in advance we borrowed some money off uh, some pretty shady characters to pay the bands who came to play and we had this idea that if everybody came to the festival bought tickets on the gate bought a lot of booze we'd have some money to pay the people who worked there at the end we'd end up in profit buy yachts live in the Adriatic start this big <laughs> festival scene instead of course what happened was uh, the guys we hired as our security stole all the cash from the bars and from, from the box office and uh, we were completely powerless to resist them because it was just me and my stoner mate from Belgrade and, uh, <laughs> saying oh whoops <laughs> it was a, I guess an anarchist uh, stunt that uh, we managed to, to, to make happen just purely through force of sheer bloody mindedness but in so, the end we were left looking, looking pretty dumb I mean the festival happened it did and I mean, it was a one-off, and needless to say, sure. it didn't have any uh, funds to repeat itself. And I mean, what kind of bands did you have playing? I mean, uh, well, the headline band was Sonic Youth, um, wow. which uh, cost us quite a lot of cash. <laughs> um, and yeah, we had visions of it, of it being a really big thing. At one point, I was going to you know, fly to London and persuade Pink Floyd to reform, and they were going to come and be the headliners. But obviously, we had to, had to pull that one off. Um, so we went down from there, and yeah, in the end, we were at the mercy of these agents who, who run the uh, the music scene. So we, we, you know, we phoned up and said we want the Chemical Brothers and Fat Boy Slim and all these other people who, who were big names back then, who were still playing festivals. Now it seems it doesn't yeah, seem yeah. that the bill changes very much as time sure, goes by. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, when um, something gets profitable. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But we were told no, you can't have that stuff. That's still making top dollar where we are. You can have all the failed names from five years ago, who no one really wants to pay cash for in Western Europe, and. Uh, we'll send them to you at an inflated price. Um, so, you know, I got exposed also to the corruption of the music industry. Um, so we had, to, we had to fight very hard to get names that, that, that we felt were more credible, but that meant that they were not names that most serves had heard of. Uh, my mate, who actually did all the bookings, um, was, was uh, you know, he's a guy who had excellent taste. We had a reggae stage with some, some, some really solid artists from all around the world. We had uh, a dance music stage imported from a free festival in Bristol, the Ashton Court Festival. So there was just some, some, some really uh, 
authentic, cutting-edge hip-hop, drum and bass, trance music, uh, you know, with, with some some real energy. And then we had, uh, you know, a fancy London club stage created by some guys who these days call themselves Horse Meat Disco, and uh, running a stage at the Lovebox Festival this year. So um, yeah, uh, they used to run a label called Newphonic. They phoned up all their mates, some of whom were, were reasonably big names. A guy called Carl Craig is probably the biggest that they, they pulled over. Yeah, well, most bands yeah. are going to go to a music festival if they're if they're going to get good money for it, which is like uh, strangely you managed to be giving them but then you then well, it all went but it wasn't your it money was, to give no yeah. I mean, we, 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 we borrowed a large amount of cash from what <laughs> purported to be a Serbian insurance company that was really uh, the, uh, the the front operation of a guy who runs a conglomerate that uh, masks his arms dealing activities sure. uh, we also borrowed a load of money from a bank uh, who really uh, are of some uncertain provenance as far as I'm concerned they were called the Export Import Bank which makes them sound as dodgy as they get yeah. um, and we also had another guy who was uh, cut in as our partner at the last minute who stumped up some cash on the understanding that, that uh, he'd be cut in with a share of the profits I think he probably cut himself in with a share of the takings from uh, the rip-off but um, you know, in the end, I've no idea what happened to the cash. I just know that I had no money to pay all the people who came to me asking for it. Yeah, so you borrowed money from dodgy organisations. Then everybody came, had a good time. Was it safe? Was it relatively safe? Um, yeah, I mean, the guys who were running the security did an excellent job. There were 500 of them. They wore jumpsuits. They had batons, rockweilers. Um, they largely served in Serbian armed forces in some form or other. Over yeah, the but that doesn't necessarily sound safe. Oh, they were very, I mean? very, it was very safe in, inside the, uh, right. the, the perimeter fence that they if were you controlling had a ticket, with. you were okay, you were safe. <laughs> well, no, you didn't even need a ticket, you just had to pay them half price on the gate and they let you in. Right. Was, was what we were told was happening. But uh, okay. from the outside, it was a fortress. They were, they were swimming in the Danube with frogmen, they were running jet ski patrols, uh, nice. <laughs> all these guys with like you know, muzzled rock violers walking around. So, I mean, it was a pretty intimidating place. There was them mounting searches on the gate to try and prove to the police that they were serious about stopping drugs, although they were probably dealing with them as soon as you get past the gate. There was then the police there keeping an eye on the security firm and then there was the army from whom we borrowed a pontoon bridge to connect the island on which the festival took place with the shore in Belgrade um, so three intense security forces you know, frisking you to get into the festival so I was actually scared about being busted at my own festival and well sure I mean you were, were you in charge of all of these people then you kind well, of half sort of, sort of, kind of nominally I mean by the end of it I realised that uh, Perhaps even my business partner had shafted me because, you know, I, mean, I didn't really speak very good Serbian. Um, I certainly was not wise to, to how one would have to deal with these sorts of characters. And I think he decided to get me involved because I was a foreign front. I was able to secure some backing from the British Embassy. The British Ambassador went on TV. Well, you were the New York Times correspondent. <laughs> well, this yeah, is I mean, the, this uh, is the idea, yeah, obviously. The I, key. I mean, my, my initial idea was to get us a load of publicity by writing about it all in the New York Times magazine uh, and interviewing myself under a fake name and, uh, you know, pretending that, you know, I, I was not involved, but... By, by, by about six months in, it became impossible to keep two balls in the air. I had to, had to, had to stay with my job and give up working on the festival as intensively as I was, or, or quit my job, which I decided to do. And by that stage, I really didn't care about it. But um, I'd already laid a bit of a paper trail to make sure that you know, I, I could use this fake name by writing to the New York Times under a fake name. Uh, Raul Jukanovic was my chosen pseudonym, which was borrowed from Hunter Thompson's Raul Juk, a Balkan version. And yeah, to their, uh, I guess, shame if they were ever to realise what happened, um, they printed that faster than most of the stories I ever sent them. <laughs> and so Raul Jukanovic has a letter in the New York Times, it's still there on their website. Um, 
and uh, yeah, uh, I, I thought Raúl Jukanovic was going to be this name that would become associated with with transformation of the Balkans into this wonderful uh, part of paradise. So instead, it's a name that, that people who work for me laugh at. <laughs> like, oh, that's that jerk from the UK who swindled us out of a summer of cash. Right. Um, I mean. When that so yeah so the, the the festival happened. Did you have a good time at the festival? Did it, I had a terrible time because I was running around stressed out of my mind, not yeah. really knowing what was going on. People phoning me, uh, uh, me unable to solve all the problems that they were highlighting, so, uh, and me realizing the whole thing was sliding out of control and I didn't really understand it. And my business partners were no longer talking to me, and I couldn't tell whether they were screwing me over or whether they were being screwed over, or who was who or who was I. And you know, I was, I was as wrecked as I've been at any stage. Uh, in the end, I retreated with the drugs that we'd uh, got from <laughs> a dodgy guy from the UK uh, to uh, provide to the various performers. Uh, I, I, I absconded with that bag as my cut of the festival and retreated to my flat and spent two weeks having a bender with anybody who wanted to join me until I got so paranoid that I realised that if anybody did actually come hunting for me for money, they would find in my elevator shaft in my apartment block best part of 100 grams of coke, 500 ecstasy pills and half a kilo of hash and I realised it was time to get the hell out of the country. And, uh. Yeah, because it's, 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 it's a dangerous enough thing in, in your country of origin to own drugs, but if you're doing it in a, in a country that you are not uh, from originally, you're in even more well, especially when you're from a, a NATO country and right. you're likely facing a Serbian jail as instant gang rape. Right, right. <laughs> and humiliation and ridicule. Indeed. I mean... So okay, so you, you didn't get to kind of have the kind of uh, recreation of the moment by the Ganges, by the Danube. You didn't get to have... Uh, someone might have done in that festival. Someone might have been there thinking we're all one and, and everything well, no, is wonderful, this, this but, is but not I, you. I, I think a lot of people did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure, the, yeah. The, 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 the thing went horribly wrong in some ways actually inside the festival because it rained so much that we had to call off the final day. Um, and we'd originally planned as some PR stunt to have a free day after after the four-day festival was finished that we would throw open to you know all and sundry and we'd stick a few world music artists on the guys that my mate could get for dirt sure. cheap basically the rest of it's kind of like a festival of open mics yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, so guys would come in they'd see the site and they'd think wow you know for next year we, we've got to be here for the big names uh, unfortunately, because the final day was cancelled, you know, bands like Sonic Youth uh, were not actually able to play. So we've flown them over, paid them a fortune, stuck wow. them in a hotel. And we had to pay them some more money, persuade them to stay for an extra day. And then on this free day, <laughs> we put on all the biggest acts. So the, the island was swamped with 80,000 people. Um, and that was that was a, a unique occasion. Um, that must have been amazing, uh, yeah. Fantastic energy there. And Sonic that, that Youth's a band. Uh, I mean, I'd like to see Sonic Youth. That would be good. I mean, they put on a great show. Uh, and, and the night before that, a bunch of the DJs who couldn't stick around had put on a free party in one of Serbia's coolest basement clubs. Wow. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, Derek May and Carl Craig, you know, giving a masterclass in Detroit techno for free. Well, Derek May, that's yeah. that is pretty awesome. I'm kind of jealous of that. Although at the same time, I'm not jealous of generally very much about your part in this story. Well, it no, sound that, no, the guys who came had a fantastic time, and they were phoning us up. Uh, certainly, the people who come over from the UK who've been paid, who've been part of this this whole sort of explosion of good energy that had you know, built up over three days of sort of you know, half half full festival to place you know with 20,000 people locked out the gate um, and they were saying when's the next one we can't wait to be back sure, <laughs> I, I was just not answering those phone calls uh, you know avoiding my emails and I was just ashamed I think that was the point at which I started to grow up I realized that at the age of 28 I'd been acting like an overgrown teenager 
um, making all these fantastical promises that I couldn't really keep, having all these fantasies that I couldn't you know, bring into reality. And, and my ego was so caught up in all of them that I was ashamed, and I, I couldn't just chalk it up as, you know, nice idea gone a bit wrong and smile. Instead, instead I wanted to hide, because I'd made all these wonderful claims in public that I couldn't live up to, and, and it forced me to, to do some very heavy soul-searching. Going by what I understand about drugs from reading about them, like the combination of drugs that you were doing, I mean, out of the three of those, apart from the ecstasy, cocaine and hash are not going to help somebody to to not feel paranoid, scared, um, and... um invest their ego massively into the into the event yeah. you summed it up perfectly yeah and then, then yeah. I basically um, smoked myself psychotic in the end uh, and I think probably my, my dope smoking was my undoing because um, I was depressed and lonely as a foreign correspondent I'd lived in eight different cities over the course of uh, four or five years um, I kept making friends and saying goodbye to them every six months uh, I'd become so dislocated that I thought it was a great idea to get involved with a guy who was obviously a chancer <laughs> and uh, basically using me, although you know, he was a wonderful guy in some other ways, he, he had, he had the, the sheer bloody-mindedness to make this thing work and, and, and help me to believe in it, and in some ways he was a, a cross between sort of Alistair Crowley and um, you know, so, so, so some, so some kind of uh, Pied Piper of Hamelin um, and all these all these kids came following and, and we, we staged an event, so... I mean, so was, was it his idea or was it your it was, idea? It was, it was both of us geeing each other along really he, he'd been involved in Exit, he'd booked the band for the first two years of exit he got disillusioned with their politics I was getting disillusioned with the New York Times he was saying to me we should do some stuff he thought I could do some publicity for him I started saying no never mind doing a few DJ nights in Belgrade let's do something bigger than exit let's actually blow them out of the water and in, in effect, that's what was really killing us. We went, we went to war with Exit. Uh, Exit was well connected with the political structure in Serbia. The guys who run the country are basically the mafia, even though there are politicians who are nominally elected to do their bidding. Um, while I was there, the prime minister got shot because he was trying to have a showdown with the mafia. So there was all this kind of weird, crazy, you know, Balkan geopolitical meltdown going on behind the scenes that was playing out through this war of two festivals. <laughs> so Exit won the battle. They've turned themselves into, you know, effectively a corporate festival, but but they. They've succeeded. It's still nice. They've got a lovely venue. Um, it, is a, it is a great place to go and have fun. I enjoyed it when I went. I just thought I wanted to do something bigger and better. And what happened to your partner? Like, what happened to him? Oh, he's still going. He's, he's he's wandering around the world. I don't know how he funds what he does. Um, he, he, he perhaps did cut himself in on the, uh, the, the the grand larceny that took place at our event. I have no idea, but. He's uh, yeah, he's he's a bit of a bit a bit of a guru in some ways. Uh, he certainly appeared that way to me. I wanted to learn from him. I wanted to be like him, I suppose. But over time, I've started to question whether I really did, and, and whether you know, he was truly committed to uh, some of the wonderful ideals he liked to bandy around to justify his behaviour. Well, it's tricky for you looking back, I guess, because you were like it's taking so many drugs. It's really hard to trust your judgment in those kind of moments for you now looking back when you're not on drugs, I guess. All of this money is stolen from you by these security teams. As far and as I'm told. As far as you know, <laughs> allegedly. Yeah, could perhaps, I mean, the guy who told me that was my business partner, so sure. I never know whether it was really or him, him or the... Right. <laughs> but the... But the money is stolen. Yeah. But there's a load of guys, and maybe a couple of girls, but probably mostly guys, who want to that money back that they've, they've lent you. Mm. What did you do? Well, in the end, this is when I realised how irrelevant I was to the whole setup. Um, 
the people who were bothering me for money were largely the people who I've been yeah, employing to work for us. Uh, the people who'd lent us the big bucks, I think, got paid back somehow from the takings. There was just supposedly nothing left to pay anybody who'd worked there, to pay me a fee that I had agreed to, 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 to be paid as a cut from, from whatever profits we made, right. uh, to, to put up the money to do another event. Uh, you know, all the things that, that might have got paid, uh, like bills to uh, government-run hotels, they weren't paid, but, but anybody dangerous seems to have been paid. The security guys certainly should, they got paid. Um, and I think what happened with, with, with these loans was that they, were the, that, they, you know, that they were the first guys to get paid back. And uh, that's why I don't know who did the stealing, because there was money actually being put into bin liners, rushed off the site, uh, and, uh, and supposedly going straight to the guys who needed it first, just to make sure they were off our back. But then you know, these, these these guys who are stuffing money into bin liners, what they did with those bin liners, Wait, those absolutely bin liners. no idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was watching this happen, you know, jaw to the floor, thinking yeah, we, was, we were supposed to have all manner of electronic payment systems set up to ensure that nothing went awry and everybody was going to buy armbands and have tickets that they bought on the gate and the tickets would be exchangeable for, for drinks at the bars, but none of it got worked out and you know, it was a Balkan shambles. I mean, nothing really works in that part of the world the way that you want it to. I started to understand how... Yugoslavia had fallen to pieces. It's impossible to get guys to cooperate. Everybody's so suspicious of one another, and they've got a good reason to be paranoid because most people are actively trying to undermine everybody else, right, right, right. all in the name of unity. I mean, that's the story of Serbs. They, 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 they sit around calling themselves the heroic defenders of their nation. They must unite against this you know, enemy that, that, that's constantly threatening them, and they've, they've had a long history of enemies. But actually, what happens is uh, some guy gets into power, screws over his countrymen, tells them he's defending them, puts them in a position where they really are under threat, says he needs to defend them some more, and you know they get sold down the river. And well, yeah, and that's, I guess that's the the, un, the the unhappy irony of, of, of your kind of story. Story is that the you, you kind of set it up for idealistic reasons, but the people who didn't get paid were the workers. Exactly. No, <laughs> so the guys at the bottom and, and the people who had been very frustrated, who I originally set out to want to help. You know, young young guys my own age who uh, wanted to make you know a dynamic uh, music scene. You know, organically growing in their own city instead of being something that would be imported by guys making a load of money from from you know big big London booking agencies. Unfortunately, uh, maybe it's a, a kind of unhappy metaphor for Western intervention in general. You you, is, you wanted yeah. to help those people, but you ended up not helping them. Well, that's what I've written about in my book in a way. I mean, it all gets tied together because this music festival experience became you know a window on the world for me. It was. It, it, it was so eye-opening. I mean, I would say it was actually even enlightening in some ways. Although it was, you know, a complete, you know, losing my illusions on a roller coaster type experience with my eyes propped open with, with you know, not just matchsticks, but some sort of form of the, the torture at the end of a clockwork orange, just forced to watch all this unfolding horror in front of me. I mean, that's why I stole Hunter Thompson's uh, pseudonym. I was already feeling at that stage like I was, uh, you know, full of fear and loathing for, for what I was witnessing, and, and that only got more and more intense. But yeah, I learned about, I learned about you know, the, the corruption of, of everything, you know, to, from, from the music industry upwards, from the way that the British government supports uh, economic interests ahead of you know, human rights. Uh, I mean, they, they were at one point um, uh, yeah, actively enabling the former Serbian regime that they'd supposedly intervened to stop to get rich off the privatisation of a telecoms company. Funded by British development aid money, overseen by people who you know, basically you know, working with with the security services. Um, 
because they hope to control those guys. Uh, you know, as long as, as long as you're our friend and you're open for business, you know, we've we've supported all manner of di dictators and, and, and war criminals around the world through being criminal ourselves. I mean, that's how we got to run a quarter of the planet, after all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was sitting there watching all this actually unfolding in a microcosm through, the, through this bloody music festival. Uh, I could hardly believe that, 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 that something as trivial as that would, would bring all these forces out the woodwork and, you know, into my living room, effectively. So, had you, so you hadn't had an idea of this kind of element of, of, of international politics beforehand? Well, or? as I say, you know, I'd gone to Cambridge University, I'd been an egotistical, ambitious young journalist. What you do as a, as a reporter is tell yourself what a fearless, open-minded, sceptical crusader for truth you are while learning very quickly what, what, you know, what, what will uh, be the, the fastest route to career advancement and that's certainly not to start poking holes in, in, in all the, the sordid misdeeds of your own country's government or, or, or writing you know, in a news story and fighting your editors over it, um, you know, ex exactly the ways in which you know, international financial institutions are you know, basically uh, colonising the world in the name of uh, post-colonialism. Uh, you, you just can't do that. They call that editorialising. They call that bias, and you're warned off that immediately. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you're told you should be objective, and, and, and I internalised all that. I hadn't really thought about it. I thought I was idealist, but actually I was very conformist. And as I started to realise that's how it worked, I, I wanted to read more. I read more widely, and, and I wanted to find out everything that I felt you know, that, that, that I'd been missing out on, or that I'd been effectively filtering out of my own reporting. But at no time did I really think I was, you know, censoring anything or, or, or not telling the truth. I was just uh, unconsciously tailoring my my, my writing or, or my understanding to conform to you know, the acceptable received wisdom that, that that most of you know international policy gets discussed in. I mean, even in papers like the Guardian, the news is framed in a certain way. Although they'll print columns from people who are actually you know very radical and, and, and deconstruct the world. Uh, you can read George Monbiot or Seamus Milne telling you how the world is run. But they're never going to edit a front page news story with those assumptions and explain to you how the corrupt. Is lying to you. In fact, I, I sometimes find that combination to be really almost worse. Like uh, the day of the Woolwich uh, murder, uh, the front page of the Guardian was absolutely uh, irresponsible and uh, sensationalist. I, I thought worse than the Express, worse than the, the yeah. Daily Mail. But inside the Guardian were lots of, <laughs> like, like you say, editorials saying absolutely the opposite of what its front page said, and that that seemed to me to really crystallise the problem as well as the strength of the Guardian. It's a, it's a weird process. I mean, the mass media is. We've nev it's never been easier to be incredibly well informed as I discovered when I wanted to become better informed after I quit my job I mean I spent a lot of time sitting in a flat unemployed in Bristol smoking skunkweed and reading the internet and, and I became very well informed I knew where to look I, 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 was, I was reading all the stuff that I hadn't really had time to read when I was a busy journalist or, 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 or a wannabe music <laughs> doesn't sound like you had much time to read when you, uh, you know, suddenly I was there so it's all out there it's hidden in plain sight and it, you know, even if you just read a daily newspaper you, you, if you can be interested enough to, to actually learn how to interpret what's been interpreted for you yeah. and, and, and use the analytical information to reinterpret the framing of the news stories, uh, then, then, then you're away. But um, the problem is that's what journalists are paid to do. They should be doing that for us on our behalf as a public service. They shouldn't be actually serving the powers that be to get their message across to us and framing everything in such a way as to make that worldview sound more acceptable or, in their mind, comprehensible. They don't think that they're trying to sell a point 
point of view. They just think they're explaining the quotes. Right, right. I mean, there's a classic example today. The Guardian's for two days run you know, all these stories about how the American government, the British intelligence agencies, are spying on us through Facebook, Google, and goodness knows what else. Today, on the front of the Guardian website, they, they, they've got a quote from William Hague saying basically, what a load of piffle. Um, and and so Hague says all bollocks is suddenly yeah. <laughs> the, the, the headline just because some powerful person's come out and lied. Um, yeah, which you know, is that's an interpretation of the headline rather than a direct quote, clearly. But well, still, no, 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 I mean, no, no, it won't no, say William Hague says all bollocks. Uh, I'm, just, be, I'm just clarifying that's why they get sued. No, I mean, I, 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 I forget exactly what, what what the thing is. I should probably. But no, 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 no. But that's the content. I think it says something like complete nonsense or something like that in direct quotes. Yeah. So they've reported this thing. They've now undermined their own reporting by lending undue credibility to you know a ridiculous ass-covering position from a government minister right. uh, and, and really what they should be doing is say government minister talks arrant arse in comparison to the documented facts we've laid out he, he claims it's nonsense but you know that should be buried down the bottom of the story instead that's always up at the top of the story and the evidence that you know was pulled out to, to shock you gets buried further and further down the story six months hence There'll be you know a couple of references to this tucked away occasionally in a comment piece, but the, you know, they're never going to start reporting on these companies as you know, the, the, the collusion with with the security services of the United States and the United Kingdom. Yeah tucked away in paragraph two as vital background information. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas they will, in the case of you know, Iran or North Korea, remind yeah. you of what heinous misdeeds their leadership's up to all the time. Sure. That's, you know, that's, that's a conscious framing process. Well, I mean, then this is why I read a, a range of newspapers rather than one newspaper, and I try and read blogs, and I try and read other things, and I, I try and piece together my own opinion from what really it is. have to do that. I mean, you know, after all, this isn't you know politicised in a way. What, what I'm talking about is actually trying to be factual. So a newspaper's gone to the trouble of finding out really you know, vital information, which it then starts devaluing and eventually burying. George Orwell had an expression for this. He called it the memory hole. Right. So this stuff comes out. They bother to tell you about it, and they stuff it away again. Right. So you've actually got to pay really, really close attention to to, to, to monitor all this stuff because it's here today and gone tomorrow. No one's going to put it into this framework that reminds you of all these facts day in day out. Well, it's it's actively played down. I mean, I was reminded of this when I did a conversation with a, a lecturer that I had at university who, when I knew him at university, he was a theatre studies lecturer. He now is a, a media and culture lecturer. And he sort of was saying, people sort of laugh at media studies as an idea, like, oh, Mickey Mouse idea. But actually, the dominant narratives that we have in the world around us are created by the media. And if no one's holding them to account, if no one's studying, if no one's working out how they fit together, then, then, then we're kind of only got the party line we've only got this kind of message that is being constructed it's not factual it's uh it's opinion yeah, opinion I mean, but then what is like the question is is that i don't think there is such a thing as factual as such like no, you can get no. close to it and you we can do our best to try and be as objective as possible but you can never completely get rid of subjectivity so you should always be not. vigilant i think no, uh, and, and as a reporter you know um, i feel although i haven't really done that job for a very long time um but but thinking like one as i still tend to because it was the thing I was trained to do um, although I now write books I still think of myself in some ways as, as somebody who's trying to report on the world around him mm-hmm. I try and declare my bias I try and say why I've adopted right. a point of view and what the evidence for holding it is um, and even to try and show why I've discounted evidence for a different point of view and that's, that's what I think journalists ought to do daily yeah me too um, and you know instead what happens is it's uh, this process of claiming to be objective which is actually impossible as we agree uh, while uh, promoting somebody else's point of view 
you disguised as objectivity. Yeah. Right. Which is, uh, it's really corrosive. It and people don't want to talk about that in a newsroom. But we could be taught that at school. It's not, you know, it's not conceptually difficult to understand. If media studies was just part of sort of cultural literacy class that you did once a week instead of you know, whatever uh, physics. But there's room to a physicist who would not like, the, the, want to see that. Lit- I mean, it, 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 a bit of a flippant comment, I guess. No, but I, I, I know I, what you mean. You know, there's room on the timetable to, 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 to squeeze in half an hour of how to make sense of the world, um, and, and there is there there are classes like that, as I understand from a mate who teaches these days and it's something to do with, with, with citizenship or, 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 yeah. or make, you know, being, being, being a functioning member of society. Right. I mean, it used to be training in needlework and metalwork. I, I guess there's no, no space for that sort of thing now because most yeah. schools have shut down their labs because it's expensive. Well, we don't have an industry in this country. <laughs> also, yeah, so there's no skills there that are worth, worth developing. So are you, do you, are you from Bristol originally or did you just no, go to Bristol No, I went to after Bristol this? afterwards, yeah. It was uh, partly through having had that connection with Bristol from the festival. My brother was also living there at the time and it just seemed a place that wasn't London to go back to and smoke away my savings. Um, I've got family in Bristol. I like Bristol a lot. Family and friends. It's uh, a good place. Yeah, it's, 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 it's certainly got an alternative mindset about it. Sure. That's, that's, well, I always think it's like. it's kind of uh, it's it's if, if the city if a city has a haircut, uh, Bristol's is the dreadlock. Yeah. Uh, because you, you get like matted hippie white guy dreadlocks, and you get like uh, there's a massive uh, Jamaican community. Well, as well, of course, so the reason that is it, is, it, yeah, it used, to, used to be a slave trading town as well. Sure. So. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that it hasn't got a horrific history but uh, its present is quite cool actually. I, I think its present is very cool I think perhaps it's partly related to its past um, you know, these, the, 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 these things feed into one another somehow and, and the, the, there is a radicalism in, in Bristol that's yeah. quite close to the surface it's, and, it is, and, and, and there's an awareness of, of a lot of things about what's wrong with our society that I don't find so, so widespread here in London especially not amongst yeah. the yeah, the, the cultural elites who I used to mix with in my, in my old jobs as a journalist. Well, there's, there's also, I mean, there's lots of squats, and there's like, I went, there's a, 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 there's a kind of village extension of Bristol that was like where all the houses were built by. The, the, the people who kind of occupied that land and, and built it, you know, like yeah. uh, there's a very cool uh, graffiti scene, and there's a real alternative scene and it's kind of an interesting folk scene that I have friends who are a part of and yeah I mean those, those subcultures obviously exist in London but they're just more dispersed I mean this is a city of what 7-8 million people compared to Bristol it's like half a million so, right. so that, 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 that energy is actually coalesced into, into something that you can't really miss whereas here it's just sort of spread out and dispersed yeah. and, and unless you're being introduced to it or you're actively seeking it out you could easily have it pass you by and, and be seduced into all this mainstream corporate nonsense that's right. rammed down your throat right left and centre sure. whereas that's not so strong in Bristol it's, uh, no, it's no coincidence that way, guys like Banksy uh, exactly. came from there, yeah, well, messing around with those images and became popular for doing so well I think in a way if you live in Bristol probably the dominant um, discourse would probably feel like it's, it's, it is alternative and you'd probably yeah. get frustrated with that in the, in, the, in that kind of way, like I'm, I'm sure if I lived in Bristol, I would get you know sick of, uh, I would, I would make a lot more kind of negative comments about lentils and hummus and, uh, and 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 you know people who aren't sorting their lives out and getting in my way and stuff. But well, actually, it's really nice to visit. I mean, <laughs> it's it, it's important to have exposure to diversity yeah. in life. I, you know, I really feel these days. And, and although I've, I've I've got a strong interest in radical politics, um, you know, yoga. 
hummus and lentils, frankly. Sure. Some of my best friends are into those things too. I <laughs> also like to surround myself by, but, you know, by other things. Yeah, uh, no, right. And, and to not get sucked into any bubble where, where, where I've convinced myself that I've got the answer or that my point of view is the right That's one. That's it. It's when it feels like an orthodoxy, isn't it? It's when it feels like yeah. the only point of view that you can hear is this point of view. That, that, that Whatever that point of view is, you should start to worry. I and think, it's yeah. increasingly easy to do that these days, especially on the internet. Yeah. And you can... You, find you know, like-minded souls whatever your interest yeah. is um, to, for, 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 from, from you know, the sort of inoffensive and uh, arcane to the really esoteric or the frankly downright criminal and really ho- horrendous mind-boggling you know, kind Absolutely, of goodness yeah. knows what's hidden away in some of these uh, shared file networks but sure. it's all out there and people can find their subculture and immerse themselves in it and, yeah. and almost live in a virtual world so you've got your sort of Twitter bubbles and yeah. stuff where yeah, everybody that's, that's, you think everybody's progressive but, but people don't think of that as drug taking you know, whereas actually you're warping your mind in a way uh, by all, you know, inhabiting an alternative parallel reality uh, without realising that you're cutting yourself off more and more from other parts of the world I mean I'm speaking I say you I'm talking from my own experience sure, yeah, I think that's what I did I mean I actually, I actually went into this sort of alternative news space so deeply that uh, in the end I found myself trying to subvert the people who were trying to subvert the mainstream media because right. I found myself frustrated by their orthodoxy and right. realised in the end that, 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 that there can be no fixed worldview which makes the job of a journalist very difficult you know you can't substitute parroting the official line with you know parroting a, a, a faith in conspiracy theories right. or, or whatever else it might be it's a difficult business making sense of the world and, and, and I think what we need is just more honesty about how difficult it is and, and, and how and none of these uh, perspectives are pure. That they all have vested interests. We all ourselves have vested interests. Right, right. We maintain these illusions, you know, in the form of an ego which we attach ourselves to, which tells us how wonderful we are. And, well, know, we have conscious <laughs> vested interests and and, su- and subconscious, unconscious uh, vested interests as well. Like we yeah. work against ourselves. Of course, of course. <laughs> and there's no way of purifying yourself to the point of having yeah. none of it. It's, exactly. Uh, death is the thing that does. <laughs> and then we come back for the great recycling in some form or other. You know, just to the point of you know more life perpetuated yeah, sure. until we wipe ourselves out, which it looks like humans are doing a pretty good job of having a go at. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it, it is a difficult job to be a journalist. I do have a lot of sympathy for people who try to do it well, and there are some people who do a fantastic job. And I wouldn't want to impugn you know anybody in particular, whether they work for the New York Times, the Guardian, or you know, or Fox News, or, or the Daily Mail. There are individuals in those, within in a system just doing the best that they can, and there are some of them who are doing a fantastic yeah, job within the limitations. That are imposed on them by the institution that they inhabit. Right. Um, and, I mean, some of them do an outstanding job, uh, as if there was almost no limit on them. Um, and the guy who, who who was behind this this leak about Prism in in, in the Guardian was Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, yep. hired as a blogger, effectively. I mean, sure. He ought to be you know, running an investigative journalism unit and <laughs> having a load of money thrown his way to get more people digging for information. Sure. But, I mean, I read Glenn, Glenn Greenwald. Yeah, he's great. He deconstructs the the, 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 the media piety very nicely um, sadly they're not going to edit the paper with that perspective they're just going to hire him to bring in more page views in America and sell adverts more, more effectively and sustain themselves now that they're selling fewer and fewer copies of the print edition and sticking the price up more and more and eventually phasing the thing out 
yeah. it's a sad, sad, sad reality of corporate corporate life. And but do you, there do is a space for, 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 for good work to be done in that as well. Right. No, no, absolutely. And do you, do, you, do you say you don't consider yourself anymore to be a journalist? Well, I haven't made any money from journalism for some time. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote my book in a way as a piece of journalism. You know, yeah, I mean, I guess you could call it... Is, is, you know, it's, it's gonzo journalism. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely... I mean, you know, I, I haven't really read it, but I, I've, I've flicked through it and it... it, it it looks, it reads, it looks like it's going to read like, uh, like Gonzo journalism I mean, in, the, in the best sense of it. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to try and compare myself to somebody like Andy Thompson because he, you know, at his, at his finest, he, he was an outstanding journalist. I mean, he gets gets associated with being, you know, slightly Mickey Mouse character, you know, who, who was basically a caricature of himself, which he certainly became at times. At his best, he was, you know, really, really insightful. Uh, day-to-day reporter. I mean, he, he, he reported on the, uh, the the election campaign that, that led to, 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 to Nixon's re-election in 1972 uh, in a way that won him the respect of all the participants in, in the campaign and the press corps. Right. Well, despite I mean, the fact he was getting wasted all the time. Sure. Right? <laughs> I mean, certainly it but, seems to me that like Hunter S. Thompson... He just did it with honesty and, and integrity yeah. and, and wasn't prepared to say what he needed to say to, to, to curry favour and win access next time around because he was there on a one-shot you know one shot ticket. He, he was, he was going to blow blow all of his contacts, burn all of his bridges, and not give a shit. Right, and I guess another kind of reference point that you've already mentioned the name, but like is like Orwell in down and out, down and out in Paris and London, uh, that sort of thing, like. I felt that, I mean, that's, yeah, I didn't see it this way at the time. I, I look back on it now and realise that what I wanted to do was immerse myself in an intense situation and document it. And um, I guess that with my fantasy about interviewing myself, you know, Daniel Simpson writes a story about Raul Jukanovic or vice versa. I was never quite sure which way it was going to work out by the time I was starting to split my head into two identities. Um, instead of that, I've, I've written a book that does that and, and, and actually explains my process of trying to make sense to the world uh, and, and hopefully does so in a way that's fairly readable. Um, my my, 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 my uh, yeah, ambition and aspiration in writing it was, was to try and show somebody else how I'd lost my illusions. And, and in a way, that's quite a humbling thing to have to do because I had to admit to being you know, the, basically the villain of the piece in some ways because I misled myself. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of my illusions were, were my own creation. <laughs> so I can't blame the world for, for foisting its, its, you know, its lies on me. I chose to believe in a lot of them because they served me quite well for a while. And is Ra- Ra- Raul still with you in some ways? Um, that energy is definitely with me. And um, although, I mean, actually, yeah, uh, I say I don't take drugs. I mean, I still occasionally drink alcohol to excess. Um, yeah. Uh, you drink coffee. Drink coffee earlier on. Yeah, once in a while, I'll, sm- I'll, you know, I'll, I'll smoke dope. I mean, it's usually five years in between each each session. But you know, and that's that. That energy comes alive in those those moments of being fueled by that um, burst of inspiration that can come from a stimulant of some kind uh, but actually I found that you know, that energy is inside me generally and uh, I was taking those things under the misapprehension that it was hard to, to, to have the, the sense of purpose, direction and, 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 and all this in myself that, that I needed and I was blown away at the end of this festival by, by hearing Derek May say, well, you know, I don't really sort of want to tell people not to take drugs, but, you know, I don't take drugs. I don't need to take drugs to have access to this you know, channel inside myself that is producing all this music. That's the godfather of techno saying people are coming along taking pills and filling his basement are really on the wrong track. And that's not what his message is to them at all. It's to, it's to open that space up inside yourself without any of these things. You don't sure. need that. So I suppose... 
Raoul is associated in my mind with uh, the mistaken identification with hashish as the source of enlightenment, <laughs> whereas the way I'm trying to live today is to, is, to, is to try and find some access to that through a yoga practice, just through conscious living and through trying to be in an informed and engaged member of society, um, to, to, to try and access that just, just organically and naturally within myself, just to be alive well, that's the thing. before I'm dead. Uh, somebody once told me about a person who took ecstasy and she was like ah I feel like this a lot like it, it, it wasn't like uh, it didn't have that blowing away moment that ha- it has for many people uh, because she had she she had access to that kind of love to that kind of uh, idea that that, that that everyone is one and that, that people you know love for people she had access to that just generally in her general life and some, uh, people, some people are born blessed I guess, sure and the rest of us have to discover how to count our blessings exactly and, and i hear attitude. i hear that the people who were there when she did it were quite surprised and uh, jealous about that <laughs> about that well there experience. are all these tales of guys um yeah, a guy who was very influential in in, in, in popularizing lsd he was a, a contemporary of timothy leary's he was called dick alpert uh, he subsequently became known as ram das and he, right, he, he, went, he, went, he went to India, gave a load of acid to his guru. Guru munched it. Said, yeah, is he well. the one who did the five, uh, the five commitments? Is it or something like that? Uh, he wrote a book called "Be Here Now" that made him famous. Right, yeah, right, right, right. But That's uh, right. He's, he, he's 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 still going. I think he's had a stroke, so he may not be with us for much longer. But uh, he, he was one of several devotees of a guy called Neem Karoli Baba, who's certainly no longer with us. At least not in that form. Um, and uh, this 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 guy was such a character that uh, he inspired a lot of Western followers. Uh, and uh, he was Im- you know immune to vast quantities of late 60s acid straight from the source. Um, he just saw the world that way already he, he, he wasn't too identified with form or his ego and was able to perceive the, you know, the, the, the organic crystallization of all matter as some interconnected reality that's pure energy and he didn't really need a drug to help him to do that and when wow. it was there it probably just passed through his system and intensified those feelings a little bit and it's like yeah yeah today's a strong day <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't altering his perception because he'd already he'd already disengaged from these things whereas my experience in that it was that uh, it was very strong and it scared the living hell out of me once when I got too identified with myself and wanted the whole thing to stop and, and, and was terribly afraid of all the damage it might have done to my precious idea of who I was yeah. um, and there was a lesson there that took me 10 years to learn and in some ways organising this festival was the thing that finally got me to face what I should have learned as a, a late teenager that, that you know I was far too caught up in my own ego and wanting to lord it over other people whereas actually I was just part of you know, this, this shape-shifting form that is life yeah <laughs> no that's a nice way of putting it um but i guess like from the profound and spiritual to the to the to the material like you never managed to pay those people back i mean no. did that get you in did did that mean that they came after you well the mean? company that we set up to run the festival declared bankruptcy um most of the people who we owe money to apart from the guys who worked there who are still to this day not very happy about that um, right no you were, wouldn't be no indeed yeah uh the other people were, 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 were government-run companies uh either the National Airlines, uh, the Hotel Yugoslavia, which uh, used to be owned by a war criminal called Arkan. Or in fact, no, I think he was originally the security man at the, the, the casino, I forget actually who owned it. Uh, maybe he did go on to own it. It's all ancient history to me now. But these were, these were businesses that I didn't feel too 
concerned about not paying because uh, they were allied to the people who had already stolen vast amounts of money, if not from us, from certainly the Serbian people for the previous 15 years. I mean, the, the pan-Balkan mafia that now runs the drug trade into Amsterdam is a creation of, of the wars in the Balkans that, that we in the Western world are certainly allowed to happen and perhaps even help to facilitate. Well, our war on drugs has always been just an extension of our, our war against people, uh, in my view. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. It's, uh, it, it, it's a dirty business. I mean, the intelligence agencies have over the years been involved in smuggling drugs into the Western world uh, to fund their covert operations. In fact, there was one great journalist who wrote a series about the CIA's collusion in crack cocaine dealing, uh, and he ended up having you know, such, such, such uh, pressure put on him, and uh, he was denounced to such an extent that he killed himself, apparently. Um, and it's nearly ten years ago that happened. They're now making a movie about it. So he's been exonerated. The guys who rubbished his reporting have said sorry. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he was right all along. It was evidence for, for what he wrote. Um, but he was saying something that the established media was not ready to hear. This was a prize-winning investigative journalist who wrote this stuff. His name's Gary Webb, if anybody wants to find out more about him. He's wrote a series called The Dark Alliance. There's a very good article about it on a website called Consortium News. Uh, if you go looking for that, you'll, uh, you'll find a very good read. And where do you stand on, I mean, where do you stand on conspiracy theories, I guess? Because, I mean, I had a guy on this show called Phil Lernis who does, uh, he did a, sh- he made a documentary in America about conspiracy theories um, called The Truth Is Out There. It's, uh, it was presented by Dean Hagland, who was a, from the X-Files, so that's where the, the, the title comes from. And they do a podcast together, um, the Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, that's well worth checking out. But um, like in that documentary with, about conspiracy theorists, they kind of look at conspiracy theorists and treat them very, like, without suspicion in a way, like present them, allow them to be heard, allow those ideas to be discussed. Um, and I, I have sympathy for the idea of, of, of not shutting anybody out of the conversation, of listening to everybody's ideas. But my feeling about conspiracy theories generally is that they're problematic because they, they allow people, they, people get distracted by them rather than like going for the awful messy truth of like chaos that we kind of have that's kind of structurally influenced I don't I have problems with the structures that we have around things but I don't think that there's five people in a room you know making decisions that that that, that affect the world but I mean the stuff that you've seen could lead you to those kind of conclusions. You've said a lot of things there that I agree with in some ways, uh, but, but I'd like to start first by making one point very clear. I mean, there are a lot of active conspiracies in the world in which uh, small numbers of powerful people get together to do things, try and keep it secret from the public. I mean, I, right. I watched that happen with the invasion of Iraq, with the people I was working for being complicit in that conspiracy. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 there are vast numbers of these things going on all the time. Uh, but when we get to the level of who runs the world, uh, as if it is one you know, coherent plot right. controlled by the, the master puppeteers, um, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, if you study the institutions in the world and, and the, the, the structural distribution of power, there are you know, disproportionate degrees of influence possessed by some groups. Yeah, no, I um, agree with that. But um, I don't think know, it's a conspiracy because so, uh, we all know about it. Well, no, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah people are getting their, their knickers in a twist about the gathering of the Bilderberg group up in Watford. I mean, you know, these guys don't need to meet in some suburban golf club hotel to, 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 to get together and swap ideas. Sure, they've got about Skype. Maintain, well, it, I mean, they've got an established policy agenda that the world is already you know, pursuing. 
Um, so sure, there, 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 there are there are hidden agendas and, and then there are vested interests, and these things aren't discussed with the degree of scepticism that they need to be by the mainstream media. And that means that it's very easy as, as a, a sceptical member of the public to think, you know, we're being lied to, and we yeah. are. Um, and the I question think is, the then, thing. what do we do about it? I mean, yeah. it's the answer to, to to have faith in some axiomatic, impenetrable worldview, which, as you say, ends up distracting people because they they, they, they attach such. Um, Certainty to something that they, they almost won't, won't be just sort of debated with. Yeah. So I'm thinking in particular of people who, who, who claim to know with certainty that the United States government destroyed the Twin Towers yeah. and controlled demolition on September 11, 2001. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't know that they didn't, but uh, I've certainly not seen any evidence to prove that they did. Well, no, but it's, if the, it's like we know, like knowing that the press lie or the politicians lie is like the starting point. And then if people kind of keep following that logic, it means that because they stop trusting anything, they end up with these very kind of idiosyncratic um, conclusions. Which, you know, I'm not. I'm not, you know, I, I think there is some case to be made for we never know anything completely, um, and so I, I can I can understand why why one would say we can never know with a hundred percent certainty that X atrocity wasn't uh, a conspiracy in this way. Well, I mean, there have been but, some pretty scandalous cases. But yeah. then, but then, if you go on from yeah, no, and I agree, and Watergate, like we we know of so many things which have been uh, terrible. That but have we need documentary done. evidence. We yeah. can't throw standards of evidence but, out the window. But, but then, it's, but then you know, you we, 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 we live we live in a world where, 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 where yeah, rationalism is still worth holding on to it doesn't, sure. doesn't, doesn't lead us to the answer to everything See, and rationalism is an interesting thing because that's the thing you, you start down this road of thinking people are lying to you and then you end up thinking that the aliens invented the pyramids do you know what I mean like that's the kind of this the, the rabbit happen. hole or, 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 that just, some people can go down there's yeah, a different yeah, yeah. kind of rabbit hole where people convince themselves that they're very sceptical they just know how the world works and, and, right. and when they see the evidence of the lie and a slightly more plausible explanation yeah. than the, the, the obviously uh, flawed official explanation. I mean, let's face it, there was a report published about the September 11th attacks that won a national book prize in America because um, it was such a gripping story, the way it was told. But that investigation that they, they put together in, in, you know, into what happened was scandalous. I mean, neither Bush nor Cheney gave evidence under oath. Uh, mm. There were all, all sorts of questions that were never well, answered about I mean, what happened, who knew what when, the biggest, how many memos <laughs> were warning of these things. Well, the biggest question is what the hell did it have to do with Iraq anyway? Well, I, I mean, that's, I mean, that's obviously, the next question. That's obviously. I mean, that's obviously question. like you know, that's the thing. We live in a world where it's not exactly conspiracies, but wars but guess, that we've seen that we can see that there was little or problematic justification for have definitely taken place. We all saw it. There I was guess, a dossier. It was dodgy. I guess all I was trying to say with all that though is actually even in the specific questions of what happened and who did what and who didn't do what right. on the case, you know, day of September 11th. If the mainstream media had done a better job in the preceding three or four years, you know, from 2001 to 2004 when that report came out of asking these questions, demanding answers of people in power, perhaps not getting them, but at least putting it out there, then this stuff would slowly die a death. Instead, 12, you know, 12 years after the thing happened, you've still got people having this passionate debate about what happened on September 11th instead of doing something more constructive to prevent the next conspiracy from being enacted. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, as you say, like lying to us about the connection between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. Yeah. There will be more of that. There will, will be things that we need to actively resist. And sure, a lot of these people who believe in conspiracy theories are you know, concerned members of the, of the public. Well, you would reduce they, will, they, will do, they will do 
what they can to stop this stuff. But yeah. if they spend too long arguing for something that really has no bearing on what's happening today, then then their mind gets sucked into that hole. That's, that's the danger. It's not yeah. necessarily they believe that aliens built the pyramids. No, I mean, they just I think, think the most important thing to do is to tell the world that they the know truth. the truth about September yeah. 11th. Well, okay, but... <laughs> What, what about just making the world that we actually live in in this little corner of it you know, a little bit nicer? That we can have some influence over. We can't really you know, pull out all the documentation about what was said yeah, or not no, said I, in closed rooms to, to, to people who, you know, who had no subpoena power. No, sure. I mean, I, I kind of agree, agree with pretty much everything you're saying there. Um, probably. I don't know. I might listen back to it in a way. I don't, <laughs> don't want to say on microphone I definitely agree with everything. Well, just, I mean, yeah, but I mean... But yeah, no, I mean, it's a. It's we all a, have to figure things out for ourselves. We'll all have different degrees of, of um, I guess, uh, it's not a nice word to use, but gullibility and, and credulity. Um, and some things will seem to us proven when to other people that they look, you know, absolutely, you know, on no on no basis could they be said to be proven. Yeah. Um, so that's that's how, that's how our minds function. We jump to conclusions. Uh, we, we we think we know things. I mean, we have very unreliable memories. I discovered this trying to write a book about my own life. I realised that I couldn't actually say with any degree of certainty what happened well, yeah. in this festival that I was organising. So who was I to start criticising these guys at the New York Times who had the wool pulled over their eyes by the CIA and you know other covert intelligence? Well, agencies. I find this all the time running a true storytelling night to to kind of bring it back to that. The the I mean. I can't be sure that, that any story I tell is necessarily true because the more I think about my memories, the more I've come to realise that all of my memories, I mean, there probably are exceptions, but the majority of my memories are, are, are in the third person. So they, none of them are true. Like, if I'm seeing myself from the outside, that's not a real memory. Of course. Of course. So, I mean, it, so the way, we, the way we remember, like, my girlfriend remembers very much sensory, like, smells and stuff. That's how she, like, that's a lot of her memory. And that's not how memory works for me. It's, I remember in stories, but that means I'm telling myself a story and I'm changing true. that story and I'm retelling that story. But that is the fabric of reality. I mean, that's the only way we can have a shared uh, awareness of anything is yeah. through words. Uh, no, sure. Otherwise, we're stuck in our little reality tunnel and we might have a more authentic uh, memory in the form of another sensory perception but, but once things have been translated into words they're communicable they can be shared sure. and there is a shared reality and we could compare notes on a memory of something that we both experience and perhaps piece together a more full picture based on both of our stories yeah. but in the end there are two stories well the way my girlfriend interprets those senses is, is through words as well I mean she's a, she's a writer and, and so like her it's about the smell but it's also about finding the right words to accurately describe the memory you know, to be. as soon as we go from beyond the world of direct experience to articulation in any form expression basically and interaction and living as opposed to just being I mean, we could sit in a cave and just be yeah. Yeah, we could yeah, be pure yeah. and there would be like pure truth but to actually be part of the, the world around us we, you know, we get into this flawed sort of, uh, I like the expression reality tunnel where, 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 where there's an interaction between us uh, where we're not quite sure whether what we perceive is what somebody else perceives how, how, you know, however much we're looking at the same thing, you know, we might not even agree on what colour this table is sure. uh, right. it's, you know, it's some sort of somewhere between white and cream, you know, yeah. who knows but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, though, to think of the world that way. It's coming back to journalism again. If everything is constructed in narratives and none of them is absolute gospel truth, then at least if we can acknowledge that there are competing narratives and that we need to decide which one you know, fits well with, with how we understand things based on our own 
yeah. awareness of the way things work, then we're informed members of society. We can ask, you know, we can interrogate the information we're given and ask sensible questions of the people who, you know, who are running the part of the world that we live in, as opposed to feeling that we're at their mercy and being force-fed something. We're only being force-fed to the extent that we're not prepared to, to, to ask searching questions. Very sure, and it's been a pleasure uh, being part of constructing a narrative with you today. Hopefully we've not been conflicting narratives too much. Yeah, it's um, been a pleasure. But it's been really great to, to talk to you. Uh, and to get better acquainted with you. The last question that I ask uh, my guests is, uh, do you have anything to plug? Which is, <laughs> I think well, I know what you're I, I have a book called The Rough Guide to the Dark Side, which touches on pretty much everything we've been discussing and does so at entertaining length, but not too long. And in, you know, consummate depth without getting too uh, lost down any rabbit holes. But yeah, in reality, the thing I'd like to plug is, is, is what I've been discussing about you know, being, being a conscious member of society and, and, and to, to question what, what you get from the media whatever medium we're talking about there, there, there is no repository of truth and I think having worked in in, you know, in in various corporate newsrooms I came away with the idea that somewhere out there there must be you know, a better source of information, sadly it doesn't seem to be but what we can be is you know, demanding members of society that, 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 that cross-reference things compare our information work together to try and construct something more in tune with the way we you know, see desirable world and that's the sort of thing I was trying to achieve by running a music festival in the Balkans about which I wrote a book which led me to conclude that I'd gone about the whole thing totally the wrong way and real activism isn't about trying to make utopia and having these crazy drug-fueled visions of what I can do for the world it's just to try and make my little corner of the world slightly more you know, in accordance with, 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 with the way I feel it it needs to be to, to, to put me at peace. Well, that's an amazing journey. Before I ask you the last thing, how can they find your book? Roughguidedarkside.com. From there, you can get a link to uh, the various electronic distribution networks that will sell it to you and deliver it to your front door. And are you writing book two? I am, yeah. I'm at work on a book about what I've learned since, um, as you've probably been gathering from what I've said. I, you know, I've been quite into yoga. Yoga was something uh, I once wrote an article about it saying yoga wrecked my hash habit. I didn't intend to stop smoking. <laughs> weed and I, I in some ways thought that was uh, what yoga was all about having hung out with Hindu holy men getting really stoned but um, I've, I've, I've become more interested in asana practice the practice of yoga postures and in meditation and in what that can do to help me have better connection to myself and the world around me so I'm going to write about that through the prism of trying to make sense of my life after leaving the Balkans with this tragic festival story you know, evaporating around me. Um, so it's, it's how I rebuilt my life in a way, but also talking about some of these things I've tried to, to engage in since. You know, alternative media, activism, becoming a, a, you know, a more constructive member of society than, than one who sat in his bedroom on the doll smoking weed. And hopefully, again, that will be something that, 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 that gives other people a little window in to, in, into a world that they might like to, to dip their toe into as well. A lot yeah. of guys I meet think that yoga isn't really for them or that it's all about bending or, 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 or that it's somehow weird and esoteric or it's a religion. It's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's sort of all of those things but actually none of them. I reckon I, got, I should put because I do playlists of, uh, of, of episodes uh, around themes sometimes and I, I can't remember if I've done one on yoga but I probably should because there's been a number of people talking about yoga on this show and uh, it's fascinating. I mean I, I, I 
I did a bit of yoga when I was at uni. I did a dance course, so I did a bit of yoga. But yeah. uh, I've not got the discipline to, to to do something like that at the moment. But maybe I'll because I'm disciplined in other areas. But maybe I'll find oh, a, a time. Perfectly to, there. It's, it is just a discipline. It's a way of life. Yeah. Well, um, and it's it's a worldview. And there are many ways. Many things are yoga. It doesn't have to be done on a mat. Sure. It doesn't have to be you know infused with Indian philosophy. It's just a, a, the ancient way of trying to be. Uh, at one with reality sure no absolutely so uh, future me that's editing this make that playlist of yoga stuff and put it out the week that this goes out the last uh, thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience thanks for listening it's been a a pleasure to to be a person you're getting better acquainted with but also to have you out there uh, listening and uh, supporting Dave's work because he's he's a great interviewer and he obviously has access to some pretty interesting characters given the number (laughs) of uh, podcasts he's put together and um, I'd like to see him have more power to bring more people together to tell their stories wow I, I, I like that way of saying goodbye uh, goodbye everybody <laughs> take care so me and Daniel met at Spark London Hackney Open Mic I'm normally the host there I won't be running it this month because I'm going to be in Edinburgh but instead of me previous getting better acquainted guest raconteur man with a complicated set of life experiences and a wonderful way of talking about them Radcliffe Royds is going to be for one month only running the Hackney branch of Spark it's an open mic it starts at 7.30 it's going to be on Monday the 12th of August at the Hackney Attic which is upstairs at the Hackney Picture House if you're not in Edinburgh if you're in London well then go along and tell some stories or listen to some stories you don't have to tell them the theme this month is going to be planes trains and automobiles so check him out there and he's also going to be upstairs at the Ritzy in Brixton on Monday the 19th of August where the theme for that open mic will be holiday disasters and I know Radcliffe's got a great story about that so I'm sure he'll share that with us in fact I think he shared that story once with us at Stand Up Tragedy talking about Stand Up Tragedy the details for that again we're at the Fiddler's Elbow from the 3rd to the 14th of August from 6.30 till 7.30 no days off if you want to come to Getting Better Acquainted in Edinburgh that is at the Banshee Labyrinth on the 12th and 13th of August at 1.40 till 2.40. And Spark London in Edinburgh downstairs at the Fiddler's Elbow 12.15 till 1.15 on the 8th of August. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com 
or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted 